kind of I kind of just want want to start at the at the top. I know you've you've been through a lot, but like even before all of these things happened to you, like what was it like growing up? Where did you grow up? Uh, you know, how it how was your life leading up to these these points that changed your life? Yeah, so uh the story before the story, man, is my parents are both from uh Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My dad got a really crazy past. Um abused from a child his whole bunch of trauma you know from his father his dad died when he was young had to take care of his family at a young age long story short my father had a lot of uh, mental health issues all of my family uncle killed himself cousin killed himself father wrestled with severe depression so whenever he married my mother at a young age they wanted to escape where they were from and they moved down to houston so they had my sister there uh, and then I was born three years later in 1990. My sister was three. I was, she was six. Uh, well, no, she was three, yeah, when I was born. So uh, because of my father's uh, mental space, is being depressed, bankrupt, losing his business, treating my mother very uh, poorly, she decided to divorce my father, take me and my sister from Houston over here to Florida. So that's where my grandparents live, you know, my mother's parents her mother and father. So my mother took me and my sister, me when I was at the age of three from Houston, divorced my father and took us here to Florida, uh, to Venice, Florida, which is in Sarasota County. Okay. Um, so my, I was raised primarily by my mother, uh, but my grandmother as well. Uh, so coming up, bro, um, I never really had a father figure. My dad, he was so poor. And he was so mentally unstable. Um, I could really only see him like during the summertime for a couple of weeks. So my outlet as a kid, man, was sports. I was an athlete. Um, so, I mean, I was blessed, though, even though I, we were living with our grandparents and we were like below um, middle class. We weren't like poverty ridden. You know, like a lot of people right. who are like in prison, you hear that's a common narrative. You know, is there a, like, you know, from the projects, you know, what I mean, like terrible backgrounds. Like mine wasn't the best, but it also wasn't like the worst. You know, just primarily being raised. My mother was always working to take care of me and my sister. Uh, my grandmother primarily raising us. Uh, so as a kid, man, I think subconsciously that made me feel like worthless and rejected just with the absentee father, not really present, not really seeming to care. Um, so my outlet was sports. Uh, and especially as a small kid, I was always the shortest kid in every class. I was the shortest kid in every grade. I hit puberty late. So I had a short complex, short man complex on top okay. of you know, the subconscious feelings of worthlessness and rejection as a kid. So that led me to, to like show aggression and always made me want to prove myself to everybody. I was always extremely vocal. I was always very outgoing and always goofy. Um, and I was always very aggressive because I felt like I had to prove myself to everybody because inwardly I felt less, I felt worthless. So I had to show to everybody else that I was worth something, that I was somebody. So on the football field, I was a beast, man. I was the captain of the team. I was captain of the defense. I was very, um, I was always a leader, naturally. Um, so I always liked to, like, boost the whole team up, get everybody hyped. And we won championship after championship for years. And so the, my purpose was football. Um, but I would say probably at the age of nine, one of my friends on the football team, he had an older brother who was a drug dealer. And at that time, you know, I was definitely, you know, uh, sucked in the hip hop culture, you know, so I love, you know, hip hop and it had a huge influence on my life. And I think uh, primarily too, just because I've seen um, 
I don't know, maybe things I could relate to, not in the sense of like, because we're from, like I was being raised in Venice, Florida. Sarasota County is like one of the richest counties in the state of Florida. And Venice, Florida is like retirement land. So it's not like we weren't raised like in the hood and the projects where it was crazy. And I'm like a product of my environment. I think I just began to um, identify with hip hop culture, especially just seeing um, maybe just like the uh, the story of um, just uh, like the underdog. You know what I mean? I think maybe I identified that as a, as a, as a child, especially not really having my father present around. Anyways, my uh, my friend's older brother was a drug dealer, and he used to come out to our football games, and he had like a mouthful of goals. And he had all these chains on and bracelets and watches on. And he used to come out with like bands in his pocket. And I used to watch everybody like follow him. And he was young. He was like 16, 17, I think like nine. And I used to see like how much clout he had and how everyone respected him when he was around. And uh, it was my friend's older brother. So he treated me like family. And I looked up to him. And I think that was like really the beginning desire that I began to experience where I was attracted to street life and street culture. I seen he had a voice, I seen he had respect, and I seen it came with like money. And I didn't know the fullness of what he was doing. I know he was a drug dealer, uh, but that as well as like hip hop culture really started getting me inclined uh, and being attracted to the street life. Uh, so this long story short, man, as I continue to get older, uh, probably around 13, like eighth grade, I started smoking weed and drinking a lot. And I started fighting. And I was always fighting as a kid on the football field and off the football field. You know, I always felt like I had to prove myself. So I was always the first to throw a punch. I was always the first. If anyone said anything, I was always the one talking to, but I was always fighting. And I was always trying to prove myself. I was always seeking acceptance. I was always seeking worse. Because I, I really felt less than. I didn't understand that at the time as a youth, but I, I don't understand now looking back as a man. Uh, so around 13 is when I started drinking, uh, smoking a lot, fighting a lot. Um, and I really started hanging around more people who are doing the same. And then that's whenever I started selling drugs. Do you think that like that was more attractive to you because you didn't grow up in it? So for you, it was like a new experience. And since you had this aggression, they'd be like, oh, this is this is people that, you know, I could kind of use this this persona of trying to prove myself like this is the, the outlet that I can do it in. Um, I mean, I think definitely because, like, you know, hip-hop culture has always glorified, like, street life and crime and, like, drug dealing and prison and jail. So I think just, like, it is prevalent today. It definitely even, like, in the 90s and, like, early 2000s, it was the same narrative that hip-hop predominantly spun and media spun. So I think, yeah, definitely I was enticed to that. And especially, like, the glory side of it because maybe I didn't personally firsthand experience that. As a child, like seeing the destruction of it, I guess maybe that was like a um, a misinterpretation that most of culture can have now today that I saw like the limelight in it. You know what I mean? So like, I think maybe I was searching for purpose and belonging and something that looked glorified. And maybe that's why I was, you know, subconsciously attracted to that more. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, because I wasn't brought up in that, uh, but I was already, you know, like I said, attracted to street culture and street life. But I realized, like, yo, like, you know, like, my dogs are selling, you know, weed, like, you know, like, I'm getting it from. And I know, like, him and his brothers, they got, like, large quantities of, of weed. So, like, why not I just sell weed so I don't got to pay for it? You know, so that's when I first started selling drugs. You know, I started selling marijuana. Um, but then whenever I started just selling weed just to smoke for free, I realized, hold on, not only can I sell weed to smoke for free, like, yo, this is pretty easy money. 
as well. You know, so then I started selling weed to everybody I'm smoking with. So then when I started selling weed, I started getting into selling pills, Xanax, Adderall, uh, cocaine. And that just began to really just spiral me out of control. Um, I think from the summer to like eighth grade to high school, when I was transitioning into high school, I was playing, I think, like freshman football. And I remember just my passions and my desires that already shifted so much from football to the streets. And especially school, like I'm failing. I think like my first like report card in ninth grade, like all left. I'm not going to school and I'm partying, drinking, selling drugs in the streets, hanging out. And now at this time, rather than hanging out with my football friends, I'm like riding the bus or getting rides to like the hood and to the projects. And I'm just some 13, 14 year old white boy, you know what I mean? Just coming out to the projects in the hood to where I still like, these are my dogs I grew up with as well and played football with. But I really had no like belonging in this side of town or in this area. I'm just going to hang out with my friends, but predominantly as well, just because I want to hang out, but also because I want to sell drugs. Um, So around this time, I'm failing all my classes. Um, I was still, you know, doing great on the football field, but during like spring training, um, no, I think it was the 10th grade year. Yeah, I played the first year of freshman. Uh, I was just failing all throughout my classes. And then my GPA was so low that the coaches were telling me like, yo, if you don't have like a 2.0 or above, you know, obviously you're not, you're not eligible to play. So that it was that sophomore year. Yeah. It was not the freshman year, the sophomore year. I wasn't eligible to play. So after like spring training, they wouldn't let me dress out my first game. So whenever I wasn't able to dress out my first game, like, like I felt like they took football from me, which they did. And I forfeited it. That was my excuse to be like, cause that was my life. That was my purpose. That was my belonging was football. But, you know, because I was already finding so much more excitement in that same type of purpose and that same type of belonging and that same type of leadership, like that I was finding in the streets, because at my age and in high school, like there are other kids who are dibbling and dabbling in the streets and they're just really smoking and drinking. Some of them were selling drugs, but I was already like kind of stepping into it at a fast pace and I was taking it serious. So I was like, leading the pack per se of my age bracket when it came to like selling drugs. So I was getting that same sense of fulfillment and purpose and belonging in the streets and selling drugs that I was looking for in football. So that made me like, man, screw football, man. And especially like, because I was hurting, you know, with everything going on in life, um, it just made me like whenever, like they wouldn't let me play football uh, because I forfeited it. Uh, Then I didn't realize I forfeited. I felt like that was taking it from me. That's when I kind of like just went full fledged into the streets. I was going to ask him where and where was your mom during this time? And you said your grandparents, right? You kind of lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then. So my mother got remarried. I think it was after a couple years after we first came to Florida. So when she got remarried, uh, that only lasted for like two years. So he was like a uh, ex military vet, and he was very like uh, he was like a manly man and very disciplinary. So that was like healthy for me. Like having him in the home, like like my mother married him. They actually like went and built a house and like a good community. So that was like a good environment for me. Like it was starting to become like a family unit, but that only lasted like two years and then they got divorced, you know? So that was like another situation of like abandonment and rejection and nobody cares. And even though I'm not like processing that, like logically as a child, I think like subconsciously stuff like that, like is going on. Um, and my pops would come, you know, like a couple of times a year, he would come to maybe like a championship football game or so. And I see him a couple of weeks out of the summer, 
So as a kid, you know, I still love my dad. I like I idolized him just because he wasn't there. I wanted him to be around, to to be around. I wanted to be with him. But as I began to progress, like in those preteen years, um, I think like that pain became like it began to turn into like rage and like resentment and hatred and bitterness towards him. Um, and I remember when I started getting in trouble a lot. I started fighting. I started getting suspended from school. And I think this is where, like, that ninth grade year, that 10th grade, beginning of the 10th grade year, I got into, like, two huge fights in high school. Um, me and my homeboys, especially the second one, we jumped a guy and beat him up real bad. It was, like, a huge thing. So, anyways, they expelled me for that. And I remember I kept getting in trouble. I was on, like, uh, they put me in, like, teen court. I think I kept getting, like, uh, arrested for marijuana. I think maybe I had, like, a possession charge. I just started getting a whole bunch of really existing arrest charges. Like, the police were running down on me. I was running. And, like, they would eventually catch me. Or even they wouldn't catch me. They knew who I was. So I kept getting, like, arrested. Like, I think it was the beginning of the 10th grade year a couple of times for, like, assisting arrest, battery at school. So I went to, like, teen court. And then I immediately got kicked out of teen court and got put on juvenile probation. And then I went to a second chance school and I was only there for like a couple months and I got into like a big conflict with the principal and cussed her out and cussed all the staff out and left campus and ran. The police were chasing me. And so I got expelled from the second chance school. So during all of this, I remember like my pops ain't around, but I remember I talked to him on the phone and I remember he would be like, yo, if you don't stop getting in trouble, like I'm going to move over there. And he had tried to move to Florida previously when I was really young. Uh, but it didn't work out. He's like sleeping out of his, his, he was sleeping out of his van. So he went back to Houston. But I remember when he told me that, I think I was maybe like 13, 14. He was like, yo, if you don't, uh, if you don't stop getting in trouble, like, yo, I'm going to come over there and I'm going to straighten you out. So I think I remember at that time, I remember like purposely getting in trouble even more because I just wanted my dad around. You know what I mean? And then like whenever I kept getting in trouble and I kept getting arrested and he didn't come, I think that's when I was like, screw you, like, screw him. Like, yo, you don't yeah, care. Obviously, yeah. if you cared, you would have been here. You know what I mean? If you didn't care. See, it was around this time when I was getting a lot of trouble. I think he, because he comes from nothing but poverty. Uh, but he had landed the job overseas. So he started doing private contracting work overseas. So he started going to Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so anyway, so he was out of the picture, you know what I mean? And like, he never like came over here. So I was like, screw it, whatever. So that was kind of like some pain. My mom, she was working the whole time and she was doing the best she could. You know, she would always try to discipline me and ground me and like can't go anywhere. But because she was always working and she was never home. So after she divorced her second husband, um, we were living by ourselves again. And then after my grandfather died, like this is years before that, like my grandmother, my mom moved in. Um, but man, I was just out of control. So my mom tried her hardest, you know what I mean, to, to keep me in line. And it was, you know, she would be snapping all the time. And, you know, but she just couldn't contain me, bro. She was always working and always gone. So I just kept leaving. Um, so, yeah, that's when I got expelled from the second chance school. And then I went to the third chance school. Same thing. So around this time, I started selling crack. Um, I'm in the projects. I'm in the hood all the time. Selling dope at a young age. And uh, I'm just hanging out with a whole bunch of people way older than me in an environment that's not my upbringing. Um, but, you know, it became like home to me. It became my lifestyle. I love the streets. I just love the fulfillment of being like the youngest kid on the block. You know what I mean? A white boy at that, you know what I mean? Out there in the projects, you know, selling dope and, 
you know, trying to compete with these people twice my age selling drugs and trying to get as much money as them. It became a rush for me. You know, just that whole street illusion of just trying to become, you know, this big drug dealer and that whole, like, Scarface was my idol. You know what I mean? It's that whole freaking street nonsense, bro. So uh, then I just started going to uh, juvenile programs. I kept getting in fights in school. I kept violating probation um, for dirty urines. I went to, like, a drug program. I was forced to go to juvenile probation for, like, six months. Um, I didn't complete it. They, they wanted me to do another six months after five months. I got a window. I escaped. Was on a run for a um, couple of weeks. Ended up going to another juvenile program. Um, I think that one was for like three months. I had to do four months because of bad behavior, because of fighting. Um, and then that time uh, I came home, I was 17, maybe about 16, 16, and trying to work my way back into public school, uh, going back to the third chance school. Um, and then transitioning back into high school. But I came home with the same motive, the same intent, you know, selling drugs, robbing, fighting. You actually said something that uh, I was going to ask you, like, like, what was your goal? Like, what, what was your end game? Like, what was going to happen? What was, what were you going to uh, become of yourself in your head as this like yeah. crazy teenager on the streets? Um, I wanted to be like the biggest drug dealer possible. Like my idea of success and I remember, I think I was maybe like 17. I remember my homegirl, I grew up with her. So she seen, like, she knew me when I was like freaking, uh, like a, the captain of the football team. You know what I mean? I was like a jock. I still hung out with everybody, but like, I was like focused on football and that was my life. So she seen me transition from this football star to now being like head first in the streets, like, like selling dope and selling crack at that at a very young age and just being in like crazy environments at the trap. So she was even asking me one day, she's like, yo, like, what are you doing with your life? And I remember I was so like, just so like deceived by the enemy that I was like, yo, this, this is all I'm going to be. This is all I'm going to be. I'm just going to be a freaking great drug dealer. I'm going to be the biggest drug dealer I can be. And I remember she was like checking me, she said, you're tripping. You can be anything you want to be. And like, I think deep down I knew that, but I was just so committed to the street illusion and the street dream that I just wanted to be Scarface, bro. I just wanted to have bricks. And just freaking uh, have millions of dollars in the street life. And just like you see in the music videos and hip hop culture and the people that I seen personally and that I knew personally that were making a lot of money and I seen it, you know, that was, you know, the end game for me. Because even though I wasn't brought up in that, but because I began to be a part of that environment and that became my lifestyle and I knew all these people, I seen it. And I seen what they were making and I seen how they were living. I seen what was achievable. You know, so my end game was to go beyond, you know. And were you making money? Like, I mean, decent money, I guess, for yeah, someone yeah, your age? Yeah, especially as a kid. Yeah, fact, yeah, as a kid. Yeah, but I never reached the point to where I was, and I'm never going to, you know, cap in front to where I was a kid with breaks, definitely not. But as far as uh, a kid in high school and as a local drug dealer, yeah, I was definitely doing my thing. Were you trying to rap? during this time too yeah 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 yeah. and that's one thing i guess i left out of my narrative which is a huge part yeah i rap my whole life man i think as a child uh my biggest um example and influence musically was uh, i think dm i think my first actually rap album was juvenile um so at a young age i was a huge hot boys fan uh lil wayne juve turk bg um but obviously um dmx i think was probably like my idol as a kid, just because I was so short and I had that short man complex. I seen how short DMX was, yeah. but how aggressive he was, right. how everyone respected him. 
So like, and he vocalized and he was proud of being short. So like, yo, like when he died, I cried. Like it really rocked my life just because how much he impacted my life. So I was always rapping. I was always freestyling. Um, but then I think I started uh, being more serious when I started going to juvenile programs. But I remember there was a studio in the hood, like a little like hood studio that we all used to go like, you know, like rap at and like sell dope at and be hanging out. And I remember like when we would be in there recording together and other people would hear my music. I remember even being on the block and other bass would come up to me. And some of these bassers were like dope boys from back in the day. And they used to pull up on me and they were like, yo, Steve, like, yo, like, like compared to everybody else in there rapping, like, yo, you the best. And I remember people used to encourage me and be like, yo, you should really take rap serious because I would like tell stories and narratives in my music. And it wasn't just like punchlines and just like swag. Like I had that, but I would like tell stories. And I think it like I naturally would vent whenever I'd rap and yeah. freestyle. Uh, but then when I started going to juvenile programs and just obviously, you know, idolizing hip hop and rappers and always like, wanting to rap, but that being a passion for me too, I began to like cope, I think, invent, and I think I began to identify that even in my programs because I started writing poetry a lot. I would still write rap and I began to like structure songs, but I also began to like actually write poetry. And I would write poetry, like, like subjective poetry and like, you know, just using illustrations of like myself and the program and staff. So it became like a sense of therapy for me at a young age, even being institutionalized in like juvenile programs. What was your rap name? Did you have one? Man, I had so many. <laughs> yeah, I had so many. I think uh, my first rap name was Fody. Uh, Fody. Like I said, like, yeah, I said, like, because I was like a big Dipset fan too. And I think, what was his name, man, from Dipset? Uh, 40 Cal, I think. Uh, so I didn't want to use like four zeros, like F O T E Y Foley, something like that. But then also L T because my my middle name is Lawrence, my last name is Testa, so like my middle initial and last initial L T. So yeah, whole bunch of stuff. I all I use I use all my drug dealer names too, like L P K T, all stupid stuff, you know. So yeah, obviously all my content then was completely uh destructive and stupid, you know. But some some of the stuff was real as far as like venting about my pain of being like incarcerated yeah. at a young age. So I guess this is summarizing, man, and not to, to be too long-winded. When I came home from the juvenile program, I started making more money than I ever seen. I started moving uh, more dope than I ever moved when I came home. And I remember my mom called me my 18th birthday because I was long gone at the house. I was messing with my baby mama. I was 17, she was 24. And uh, I remember my mom called me on my 18th birthday. She knew how I was living and she said, uh, you're going to jail and I'm not going to bond you out. I'm like, geez, thanks. thanks for the happy birthday, mom. You know, but she just knew where I was headed and I was full-fledged in the streets. Um, so long story short, at the age of 18, I think it was maybe only like a couple months, 18, uh, there was a drug deal gone bad. And uh, the person, the victim of the crime, got like his whole face like caved in, like his eye socket and his cheekbone was like, he got really, you know, he got hospitalized. Um, and there was witnesses on the scene, and there's a big ordeal about it. I really can't get into details about the case. Uh, there's other people involved. But anyways, I was sentenced to 30 months in prison at the age of 18. Uh, 30 months in prison and uh, two years probation for, uh, like, the original charges, like ag aggravated battery with a deadly weapon, robbery with a weapon, uh, so on and so forth. But I kept fighting my case. I got a knockdown to do the simple robbery and battery. So at the age of 18, I went to prison for the first time. 
uh, when my baby mama was pregnant. She was six months pregnant when I went to prison. Uh, but I guess like to, to put in like, you know, Christ in the center of the context. So like people don't think, think I got saved out of nowhere. I was never brought up in the church. But when my dad went through the divorce with my mother, the Lord was really rocking my dad. So he was going to like Bible studies and he was reading the Left Behind series. So I remember when I see him in the summers as a kid, he was like so obsessed with these Left Behind series, he would like tell me about them. And like, so that's when I started hearing about the gospel was from my dad. And like this, every other American, like I believed in Jesus. You know what I mean? I said the sinner's prayer. Like, and then like when I was nine years old, like some neighbors, down, like some neighbors took me to a church service. And it was like the strong team when they bend the thing and rip handcuffs and rip phone books. So I said the sinner's prayer. And I used to pray all the time, especially when I was in the streets, like robbing and selling drugs. I knew I was living wrong. I used to ask God to forgive me and protect me. It's like God would send evangelists to me when I'd be on the street corner selling dope or, you know what I mean? It's random places. I respectfully listen. I believe in God, but I never genuinely like repented. I never genuinely like surrendered my life to Jesus. I never experienced salvation. But those were like, like movements of God all throughout my life yeah. where God was ministering to me. Uh, so then at the age of 18, when I went to prison for the first time, when I was fighting my case, uh, long story short, my, my, my celly, he had got caught with like a, a quarter brick. He was in there fighting this case for like a year and a half. He got saved while he was in there. So while he was in there, he shared with me his testimony a couple of nights, like while I was in. And then he shared with me in the gospel, of, uh, Matthew chapter six, verse 24, no man can serve two masters. You love the one that you hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so for the first time in my life, it's like the light bulb went off. And God showed me, like, yo, like, I'm not your God. Like, your God is money. Your God is yourself. And so for the first time in my life, like, I saw my sin. I was broken. I was hurting. I was facing prison time. My baby mom was pregnant, you know. Um, and I was already experiencing all throughout, like, my adolescence, my teenage years, nothing but incarceration and destruction not destroying my life. So, I like, already, like, I'm a smart kid. I was a smart kid. So I already knew, like, you know, there's no purpose in this. There's no fulfillment in what I'm doing. So I was broken. And at that night, uh, I got on my bunk, man, and I genuinely just committed my life to Jesus and, uh, like, wholeheartedly, like, gave the Lord my everything. I said, God, I'm done selling dope. I'm done, like, thugging in the streets. I give you my everything. I want to live for you. And from that night four, my life has been forever changed. And that's when I genuinely experienced salvation. But my growth process is completely, like, different. I wouldn't say completely different, but it hasn't been pretty at all. It's been very different for most Christians from what I hear and from other people share with me. The very next morning I got in the fight, you know what I mean, in the county jail, you know, that's so, so anyways, I went to prison for the first time then. So that's when I did 30 months. Okay. So you said you made a, a complete change. You dedicated yourself, but that's only the first time you've been mm -hmm. to prison. So there's still two other times. So, yeah. so then what, so what happens next? So you get okay. out, so you get out yeah. and then, and then what did you do? Okay. Yeah. So just to give you like a brief summary of whenever I went to prison, when I was 18, from 18 to 20, I was on fire for the Lord and I was an infancy Christian, but God was using me just naturally. I was just in love with Jesus. I wanted to live for the Lord and just my whole first, you know, like my whole first bid was just God just like. I don't even know what I was doing. I was just figuring it out. I was being discipled by other mature men of God, like chaplains, and listening to a lot of preaching and teaching, devouring the word of God, growing as I pursued the Lord in prayer and obedience. But God was using me to minister to the guys I was doing time with. 
you know, to all the guys who are, because, you know, I went to JIT camp, and JIT camp is crazy. You know, everybody's gangbanging, extortion everywhere. All everyone's getting wet up, stabbed, fighting. In the midst of the chaos, God would use me to, like, mediate peace and administer the gospel and to be sharing the gospel with these guys. But also, too, a big entrance God would use me in the chain game was rapping. I, I was freestyling. I began to, like, I really, at this point in time, I really didn't begin to write to the Lord yet, but I would always be freestyling because there'd be always these rap cyphers. So in prison, I used to always be jumping in these freestyle, like, cyphers. But I'd be doing nothing but straight, like, giving the gospel and, like, you know, just like like tearing down the illusion of the streets and people would really be like hearing it and be feeling it. And they now they would want to rap about God and stuff like that. So anyways, whenever I got, so that's when like God was really beginning to show me like his call on my life in ministry and as a leader, you know, and how to lead people to Christ and to like to, to serve the flock of God. I didn't really fully comprehend it then because I was like in my infancy stages, but naturally the spirit of God was using me. But when I came home, I went right back to the city where I came from and uh, I didn't know no Christians, bro. Like, I didn't, like, all the Christians that I knew coming up were lame. They, like, played around the flag pole at high school, you know? So, like, I couldn't identify with them, and I didn't consider them cool or people that I even personally, like, knew firsthandedly. So when I came home, like, at first I was on fire for the Lord. I went right back to the hood, and I started going to the church in the hood that I used to be at selling dope because I went there before um, I got saved. So uh, I remember, like, my dogs, when they see me come home, like, they would even, they came to church with me my first day out, you know what I mean? Because they see me in church, so all my dogs in there, they in the church with me. And I'm trying to, like, stand firm, you know what I mean? And not, like, you know, go back to the streets and encourage them, like, yo, I'm looking for God now, that's what it is. Um, but slowly but surely, I began to wrestle with pornography and sexual sin. And because I wasn't plugged in the Christian community, like, that church I was going to is a whole bunch of elderly black people. So it wasn't a place where I really, like, you know, fit in or had like solid, like genuine relationships with people my age. I wasn't being discipled. I wasn't being held accountable. I wasn't being mentored. Uh, so because of sexual sin, I wasn't seeking God in prayer and the word daily like I was. A slow drift happened. But then the slow drift really was enticing me because all these guys I grew up with, my dog in the streets, they had surpassed me in the streets. You know what I mean? As far as like the amount of money that they were making, amount of dope that they were selling. So when I came home, like, I was congratulating them in the sense I was proud of. I wasn't hating on them, but I kind of was enticed of, like, wanting my spot back. You know, that made me to want to go back in the streets and, you know, to achieve and attain that goal back in the days, like, in the streets when I was trying to reach. So that let me go right back to the streets, man. I went right back selling drugs, right back using drugs. And it was, like, a, like a, like a couple-month process, not even a couple months, maybe some weeks, a month or two process. Uh, but all the while, man, I felt fake because inwardly I knew that wasn't who I was. Like every time I get high and drink or snort coke or take ecstasy or selling drugs, like I just felt like I was like perpetrating because I knew that wasn't who I was. I knew that wasn't who God had transformed me to be. And I knew he had so much more for my life because I experienced him at such a deep level my first incarceration. Uh, so I used to wake up every day riding around with a, with a gun under my seat dope all up on my console and I knew God was going to lead me to repentance. I used to ask God to protect me and I knew he's going to lead me to repentance, but let it not be through the hands of law enforcement. <laughs> that used to be my prayer. That's how I used to start like my morning. Like I asked God to protect me and I know you're going to restore me. I know you have a call on my life. Just don't let it be through chastisement of law enforcement. <laughs> you know, just like get me right another way. Um, and I remember I used to go serve like some of my like people when I'd be like, you know, pull up, you know, people I was serving, selling dope to. And there'd be times when God would even use me in my sin. 
you know, to where I'm like, they're like hurting or venting or whatever. There's a spiritual topic comes up and I begin to share my experience with the Lord, you know, about how God transformed my life. But I'm tripping. I know this isn't who I am and God has more for me. So even in my chaos and my full-fledged rebellion, God would use those moments to remind me like, yo, son, like this ain't you, bro. Like, this is not you. And I have so much more for you. So, uh, so long story short, one day I was, uh, with my dog, he just got out of prison from Chicago and we were going to the strip club and I was about to go stop in my apartment to go get rid of all my dope. I just wanted to go put the dope up and he was about to go out. So before I could even stop at the apartment, the police were trailing me and, uh, I couldn't pull over because I had too much dope in the vehicle. Uh, and I got in a high speed chase, you know, I wouldn't pull over with all the dope in the car. So I got in a high speed chase. Uh, allegedly got rid of all the drugs. Uh, I was on a high-speed pursuit and like Crad told of the vehicle was on a high-speed foot chase for a couple hours. They found me with canines. Uh, and because I was out on probation, uh, I was sent back to prison for another two years. Uh, second, The second trip to prison, uh, when I got live back up, man, I just felt super fake, bro. Uh, I'm like, man, I'm gonna thug this one out. I'm not gonna repent. You know what I mean? Because I felt so flawed for getting out and backsliding. You know what I mean? Because I was so on fire for the Lord. I felt so hypocritical. But that ain't last long. Like, after, like, a month sitting in the county jail, man, the Lord's dealing with me. He leads me to repentance again. I get back on fire. Um, so same thing, man. All throughout that second bid, doing that two years, uh, God has continued to mature me. I just began to continue to chase after God. Same thing. Like, my prison bids would become, like, sub- like kind of like sabbaticals from the streets. To where like I would just get super intimate with the Lord. Gen- it was it wasn't pump faking. It was like genuine, like like experiencing Jesus, and not only like chasing after Him, but God would genuinely use me to to minister to other men around me. Uh, and that's when I began to I think really walk into my calling and my purpose because I began to be because then I would I didn't go to JIT camp the second time. I went to adult camp, so uh, I was around a lot of guys with life sentences and like especially like mature men of God who had like hot elbows, life sentences but they're on fire for the Lord. So they're super mature in their walk. And I just was able to be discipled by a lot of mature men of God. Uh, and I, as well, not only experience like genuine fellowship, but I began to see what like the church was to look like in prison. Just the outreach, like on the prison yard from like these guys who got life sentences a lot of time. Like it's all like ministry work, but from the inmate population, from like the incarcerated church. And just being able to be able to part of these ministries, to be able to serve, and to see the structure and the leadership. And then myself beginning to walk in my calling on my anointing. God began to use me to lead prayer calls in the dorms, uh, as well as to do like formal Bible studies. And just most importantly, this life on life discipleship, mentoring guys who are gang affiliated, trying to help them get out of that lifestyle. Um, and just always being in the trenches, man. I think God always gave me a natural boldness just to be in the midst of the chaos and to be a witness for Christ. And that, that was just walking in my calling. And that's when I began to write um, Christian hip hop. I began to struggle, but I still struggle, man. Like, I wouldn't even say that second bit, I was like fully on fire because I go back and forth. Some days I'd be on fire, some days I'd be tripping. I got into a fight on the rec yard, it's a whole long story. Uh, I was in confinement for a while. So during this time, I was thinking about like, I was thinking, I was real discouraged. I was like, man, I'm not gonna change. I'm not gonna be able to get out and lift the Lord. I'm plotting about getting out and going right back to the streets and selling drugs. And then, so I'm on a rec yard one day when I'm out of confinement, I'm smoking weed a lot in prison and I'm just, just doing wrong. And uh, I hear Lecrae for the first time on a mainstream like hip hop station. And it was just like you. So when I'm listening to a song, I never heard Lecrae before, never heard of Christian hip hop, I started crying. 
And right then, God just led me to repentance again, restored me. And that's when I started writing Christian hip hop. Because I didn't even realize like Christian hip hop was a thing. Oh, is that raw like that? So yeah. I started writing Christian hip hop, you know, started writing for the Lord and just doing like a lot of spoken word poetry. Um, I was still rapping before that, but I kind of put the pen down for a while after I got saved because my previous experience of rapping was all negative. Um, so same thing, man. I got out. Um, and then this time I had heard across of a church in Pastor Tommy while I was incarcerated. Um, so whenever I got out, I was driving um, from where I was living at up to uh, Tampa to go to across of a church. I linked with Pastor Tommy. We began to build a relationship. And I drive up to Tampa um, every weekend to go to church and go to crossover. So I got plugged in the Christian community. Uh, but same thing like the last time, bro. I started uh, having sex with women, started wrestling with pornography. I was like, and I was so far from the church. I didn't have that one-on-one, like life-on-life community and the yeah. fellowship of a church around me. Uh, but this time I didn't go back to the streets. For the first time in my life, my kids were born. The first time I was in prison, I can't believe I left that out the whole time. I have twins. I have a boy and a girl. They're 13. They were born when I was in prison the first time. Um, so, you know, now when I'm out of prison, my second time, they were four years old. And I wanted to be home and be a father, man, because they were born when I was in prison. I missed everything. Um, so I started working for the first time. I was roofing. God was blessing me. He was providing for me. But because I was having sex with women and wrestling with sexual sin, rather than being on fire for the Lord, I just got consumed in a party lifestyle. I never really experienced that in the streets. I used to go out occasionally to like the clubs, but very rarely I'll go to like Miami or whatever, but I never really like experienced the bar scene and the club scene. So now coming home at 20, like turning 21, all my friends I played football with, I, I stayed away from my dogs who was in the streets because I didn't want to get sucked back into that dope boy lifestyle. I started hanging out again with all my friends who grew up playing football. So uh, when I started hanging out with them, these are all frat boys from college. We're going out every weekend, partying, drinking, having sex with women, using drugs again. Um, so even though I didn't go back into the streets, I still was tripping. I still was backsliding. I stopped going to church for a while. But man, God was really just dealing with me, man. I remember I drive all the way to Tampa sometimes and I pull up in the cross in the parking lot and I'll just cry. Like, I was so miserable. I was so depressed because, like, I experienced, like, the fullness of life while I was incarcerated, like, in my walk with Jesus. But I was, like, completely backsliding and rebelling, and I was so miserable. And, like, I was, I was like, 23, I think. I felt so unaccomplished. I was living with my mom. You know what I mean? I wasn't selling dope, so I didn't have money. I wasn't nobody. You know what I mean? That whole experience was new for me. I wasn't used to that. And I felt real lame. I felt really self-conscious and insecure. And uh, so that just led me into a cycle of depression and just partying, man, just using drugs. I was still working at nine to five, but I just party all weekend. I still see my kids, take care of my kids financially. Um, I'll go to church occasionally, pass the time with Siri once in a while, but I just went off the deep end. So long story short, one night, and this is the end of it. I go to a club and uh, I go to a club. Last thing I remember was dancing with a Spanish girl. And I went with two of my homeboys. That's the last thing I remember. I wake up three days later uh, in the ER, all jacked up from a car accident. Keep fading in and out of consciousness. I remember they take me from the ER, they move me in another bed, keep fading in and out of consciousness. I wake up again, and now I'm handcuffed to a hospital bed. I look around and see police officers in my room. I'm keep fading in and out of consciousness. My leg's broken. You know what I mean? I'm all jacked up in the hospital. I have no idea what happened. 
I'm begging the police to tell me. They're telling me I'm about to do a life sentence. They won't tell me what happened. I'm wow. freaking out. I keep fading in and out of consciousness. The nurse comes in the room. I'm like, yo, what happened? I'm, last thing I remember is dancing with a girl with my homies. So I'm like, yo, Jimbo, Josh, are they okay? Are they? I'm crying. I'm thinking like they're dead. I was in the car accident. I don't know. So she's like, who are you talking about? I'm like, Jimmy, Josh, are they okay? Are they okay? And she's like, you weren't with anybody. I'm like, well, who did I hit? Are they okay? Are they okay? She's like, you didn't hit anybody. So I'm like, well, what happened? Like, someone tell me what happened. And she's like, you were in a car accident and you hit a palm tree. You hit a tree. So my dang. So my femur snapped through my thigh. I had a 2009 Nissan Ultima. Um, I hit two royal palm trees. They're like two, three stories high. They're like this thick. I derooted two of them from the ground, supposedly. Uh, my seatbelt snapped. My airbag didn't deploy. I was ejected from the windshield. I get base flatted. My femur snapped through my thigh, rod, and my femur pins in my legs. I was all jacked up, battered and bruised. And I had no idea what happened. No idea what happened. You, and you hey. still don't. And you still don't? I mean, to the, I mean, I know what happened, of course, but as far as my memory, right. my recollection, throughout the course of my past incarceration, which is seven years and eight months, and now being home eight months. I still only have brief flashes of what happened. So after a couple of days, a detective comes in the hospital room. I already knew who he was. I already knew he was there to question me. So I, I'm, I'm so hot. I already know I'm going back to prison. I already know I'm, I'm finna do a lot of time. I don't know what happened. The police officer said I tried to kill a cop. That's all they told me. So I know I'm finna get it. They got, in the state of Florida, they got PRR, a pre-release offender act, and HBO, a visual violent offender act. If you commit a certain crime, you get at least like 15 years. So I knew I'm going to get hung. I know I'm facing a lot of time. I'm I'm upset. I'm depressed. I'm angry. Purposely stays in the room to talk to the other cops. And for the first time, while well, he's telling the cops about my case, the first time I hear it. So uh, he's telling the police that I was in the club, uh, getting a fight in the club. I knocked out a guy. Security and police kicks me out. I get in the fight in the parking lot. Um, when the police come, uh, I get in my vehicle. I leave the scene. Apparently, they made it seem like I tried to gun down a police officer in my car. I hit one officer and I try to hit another officer in my car and then go on a high speed chase. All of which, none of that's true. Um, even though my paperwork says that the people who were there that night said that I just clipped the officer in the leg. I didn't see him. He was like walking in front of the car trying to stop me. And they said I tried to move out of the way. Like, and I just clipped his leg. Yeah. But, you know, because of my record and because of, like, you know, my past, um, they made it seem like I tried to, like, purposely gun an officer down. And, like, he hit the hood. And, like, I threw him off the hood and tried to hit another cop. And it was going crazy. So, uh, yeah, those are my charges. So then that's whenever I was incarcerated again, man, uh, for uh, seven years, eight months. And that was my last bit. Did you think it was going to be longer? It was supposed to be oh, longer. Yeah. You yeah, thought you were yeah, getting yeah. life? I didn't. I knew I was going to get life, but I thought I was looking at least anywhere from 15 to 25. My charges carried up to 66 years. So there was Dang. one and only. Yeah, so whenever I was fighting my case, uh, there was only one and only plea deal. And that was like 110 months or something like that, which is seven years and eight months. And uh, I think honestly, and even my lawyer said it, it's because my case was kind of like, it was like crazy. Like they souped it up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But really like the threat was, yo, either you take these seven years and eight months or we're going to HBO you and PR you, which means like you'll get like at least 15 to 25. So I was forced to take seven years, or eight months. 
Well, I was forced to take nine years, nine years, but on nine years, it's like eight years and 11 months, but on nine years, you do with gang time, seven years, eight months. For you, you knew that at that point, like you were walking in to the biggest, you know, bid of your life. So like the other time, not that two years is short and that other things are short, but you feel like there's, there's kind of a, you know, an exit, like there's a way out. So you're walking through the, into the prison for the first time about to do that long bid and like, what's running through your head? Like, what are you thinking? Especially knowing where you've, you've come from. And then also knowing that strangely you, for your soul, you found more freedom in not being free um, than you did actually on the streets when you were free. So I'm sure yeah. like there was just so much going on of you just walking and kind of looking around and being like, all right, you know, seven years, nine years, whatever. Um, honestly, when I first woke up in the hospital, there was like three thoughts that came to my mind. Number one was like, yo, this is God's, this is God's divine chastisement to lead me to repentance. Number two, I knew I was going to get seven years. Uh, just to briefly state, like when I went to prison the second time after I got sentenced, I had seven years on my heart for like weeks. Like I just felt God pressing on my heart seven years, seven years, seven years. And I kept asking God in prayer, like, yo, like what's up with seven years? And that's how God was laying on my heart. Yo, if you rebel against me one more time, you're going to get seven years. So like I knew in the hospital bed, like before the offer even came, I was like, yo, I'm going to get seven years. And that's exactly what happened seven years, eight months. Uh, then the third thought was, uh, this is what it took. Pastor Tommy had prayed with me the last time I seen him a week before my crime, two weeks before my crime. And he asked God, whatever it takes to arrive this man to be the man that you have created him to be. He's like, God, it's a dangerous prayer. God, whatever it takes, let it happen. And I remember driving home that night, like, like with worship music on, like weeping in prayer. Like, God, whatever it takes, God, whatever it takes. God, I was so tired of freaking running from the Lord. Like, God, whatever it takes. So when I woke up, like, in the hospital, I knew, like, yo, this is what it took. Like, I'm about to catch a long bed. So at first, man, like, when I caught all that time, I was pissed, man. Like, I was, like, I was still in rebelling against the Lord. I was in the county jail fighting. I caught outside charge. You know, I'm fighting. I'm freaking furious. I'm mad at God. I'm mad at myself. I'm depressed. I'm angry, bro. I'm about to miss my entirety of my kid's childhood. You know what I mean? I just got sentenced to nine years. I'm hot. The only thing I'm thinking about, honestly, while going into prison is just having sex with women officers. You know what I mean? And and making a home while in prison. You know what I mean? And But also at the same time, like, I know, of course, going into this thing, that was just a temporal moment for me of just, like, anger. I'm just dealing with the situation. I'm just being upset. Um so I think it was only not even maybe like a month in. Like, I think when I first got in there, I was like smoking weed and hanging out. But not even like a month, two months in there, I got my MP3 back from my previous bid. You can reorder. It has all my worship music on there. And it's listening to all the worship music and all the Christian hip hop and just God stirring me up again. And it's leading me to repentance. Uh, man, he just led me to repentance again, man. And uh, set that flame right back on fire. And uh, of course, the bid hurt but when you have a long time like you said you hit it on the head like you know when you have short bids like at 18 two and a half years like forever but you know there's like like it's a short like it's a short bid you know you're about to come out but whenever like you catch a nine piece it's like yo like i'm gonna rock out for a while so you're not even thinking about home you're not even thinking about the streets you're not even thinking about getting out you're thinking about like prison life so 
immediately, man, like as God like began to restore me and my relationship with him, God began to put a fire in me for ministry. Because before I got out the second time, God began to give me vision for ministry. But I never saw it fulfilled when I got out because I backslid. So whenever I went back to prison again the third time, it's like that fire that was there for ministry, like came back to life. But this time it was like way more stronger. And uh, I remember like I was just reading the Gospels and I was just seeing how Jesus was ministering to people. And I remember just like being in prison and seeing everybody around me. Of course, I'm hurting, but God's dealing with my pain. And I just began to see like everyone around me and everyone who I was incarcerated with in my prison bid more as like a missionary journey. And like God has me on divine assignment while I'm here. And uh, that's just how I began to uh, just really gain momentum and consistency in my walk with Jesus. And that's how I found purpose in the midst of that incarceration, my last bid. Uh, God began to lay on my heart. It's like, I felt like God was giving me a vision for like ministry in the chapel department. So I went to the chaplain and he's like, I'm fired for the Lord. I'm like, yo, I feel like God, because really, I've seen inmate ministry before, but most like prison like administrations don't like inmate led ministry because like they don't want inmates to have power. So he was like, bro, like administration is not going to allow that here. He's like, but you know what? That vision, that fire you have for ministry, God can do it through you in the dorm and on the rec yard. So that's when God just began to give me vision for ministry and like on the rec yard so that we started going out every Sunday, like on the rec yard, preaching under the pavilions, like right in the middle of gang meetings and going out evangelizing and doing all kinds of outreach and events. Uh, just, and so the whole prison did, man, it became nothing but ministry and me walking in my purpose of just enjoying Jesus, knowing him more intimately and just discovering God's purpose upon my life, even while incarcerated as a pastor. I planted uh, four different churches at four different prisons throughout my incarceration. At four different prisons, able to pastor them, plant them, disciple other men, watch them discover their spiritual gifts and exercise and walk in them. Uh, so not only was I preaching and teaching and pastoring, but also, too, I was beginning to write music, like, seriously. And God gave me a vision uh, for release, for music, for ministry. My, one of my best friends was shot and killed. That was devastating. Uh, and just all that emotion of him losing his life, God has ignited that, that vision and that fire through his death of the purpose that God had for me to reach the streets, you know, and to reach the streets with the gospel, you know, that, that hip-hop would be a platform, but it would be for the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel to do ministry. You could say kind of with, with certainty that going to prison was, was the best thing that ever happened to you for that given point in your life for where you were headed before you went in. In fact, I would not take back one day of prison that I've ever done. I've done over 12 years in prison. From the ages of 18 to 31, I've only been out for 14 months. I would never take back not one day of incarceration because I know God used all of that to make me to be who I am today. When did you get out last year? I got out October 3rd, 2021. I've oh. only been out for eight months. I know I, I read one of your songs is kind of about your, you know, you had, uh, I don't know, fiance or a woman like waiting for you when you yeah, got yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. It was devastating. Yeah. But I mean, I think God really helped that for my release because like, yo, I was, that was, I think, a, probably like every man, you know what I mean? We, especially like a godly man, when you save, you long for a godly wife, you know? So she wasn't on fire for the Lord. She wasn't even in Christ. So I was seeking fulfillment in a relationship. 
So I think God taught me the hardest lesson last. You know what I mean? Like, yo, my release plan was structured around my relationship with this woman. And you got you together know I mean? with her while you were in while prison? While I was in prison. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, like, that whole experience and that heartbreak, I've never been in love in my life. Like, I had a baby mama, but, like, yo, I never let my guard down. I never genuinely, like, loved a woman, yeah. especially, like, as a mature man who knows how to love somebody and to, like, let somebody in. And I was mature in Christ. I let that happen. And, like, we had a real relationship, even though I was frustrated. But, uh, yeah, I think God has purposed that, like, that deepest pain in my life through that heartbreak. And right before I came home to drill, like, the last, like, lesson, like, one of the biggest lessons, because my biggest weakness has always been women. It's always been, like, sexual sin. Like, a lot, like, in my walk with the Lord, I always, like, started the backslide. I always started the drifting. So I think God used that as, like, the last and final big lesson. Like, yo, like, don't you ever forget, like, a woman will never fulfill you. Like, don't you ever even think about even being with the unbeliever, number one. Number two, a woman will never fulfill you. And your loyalty is first to me. You know, so I think God really like allowed that to happen to uh, really just drive that lesson home right before I came home. So you found out about what was it like a pregnancy and that she was with somebody else while you were still yeah. while you yeah, were getting I, ready to come out? I had um, I had 18 months left and I was about to sign up for work release. Long story short, COVID was just popping off. I could tell the relationship was falling apart. I was fighting for it. You know, she was vocalizing some doubt. Um, she started hanging around like an old high school sweetheart. Um, and I, I kind of peeped game. Like I was telling my dog, my cousin, who this is my best friend's cousin. I told him, I said, bro, I already know what's going to happen. She's going to cheat on me. It's going to be with him. She's going to get pregnant and she's going to marry him. Watch. And that's exactly what happened. So whenever she ghosted me, um, you know, she broke with me through like a couple sentence email, blocked the phone, <laughs> you know, which is crazy. Um, but, and then that's when slowly things began to come out. Like my dog would tell me like, yeah, she's dating him. And then after like a couple of weeks, the reason why she broke up with you is because she was cheating on you and she got pregnant and she's going to stay with him. Yeah. So all and that man, came out. What was COVID like in prison? In man? Oh, it was crazy, bro. It was crazy. Uh, I think the reason why it was kind of like scary at first, like, I mean, no one really cared, man. It was kind of like whatever at first. Like, they shut down the whole compound, like, one at a time, no rec yard. And the police are coming in the hazmat suits. We're like, dang. So all we're seeing on the news is all these people dying. So when the police start coming in hazmat suits, we're like, dang. Maybe, like, this is for real. You know what I mean? So now, like, everyone in the dorms getting sick. So, like, in prison, you have, in Florida prison, you have two type of environments. You got, like, two-man cells or you got open bay dorms. So at this point in time, I was in an open bay dorm. So one person gets sick. What is in prison in general? If one person gets sick, man, everybody gets sick. So uh, they got nurses coming around every night and taking people's temperatures. And if you have such a, if you got a temperature, they're like packing your stuff up and taking you to a quarantine dorm. So you're watching everybody drop like flies. Everybody's getting sick. And it was the worst part about COVID in prison wasn't the fact of getting sick. And uh, like, it was the fact of being quarantined. Because in prison, you got to remember, you're in prison, bro. Like, you're locked yeah. up. So um, so imagine being, like, confined to a dorm or a cell, like, on top of that. Like, being in confinement for, extend, not just for, like, 30 days or 90 days, but, like, for months. You know? So, like, no interaction with other dorms. Like, 80 people in one dorm. All the conflicts. You know what I mean? All the tension. Barely going out for wrecked. It was a hard time, bro. And especially for me, 
because I only had like, I think maybe 18, 17, 16 months left waiting to go to work at least just signing up my girlfriend and fiance that just uh was you know all that emotional turmoil i was going through i just had to deal with it you know what i mean it's like myself and god in that dorm it was it was miserable bro it was definitely rough it's like a brief side note about prison life one thing that's crazy it's just like society like yo you could live your life countless ways out here in society it's the same thing in prison you know what I mean? Like, like people can do your time like countless ways. Some people do their time behind doors like that. You know what I mean? So it's, everyone can have a different prison experience. I always tell people, man, unashamedly, I champion my story and everything I experience because that's what God does, bro. He's a God of redemption. Mm-hmm. Like he takes our destruction and everything that he permitted us to go through. He used that to shape and mold us. And not only does he redeem our souls, but he redeems all of that mess. Now look at all that mess and all that chaos I went through. Not only did God use that to transform my life, but now he's using that same narrative and message to impact other people's lives, transform their lives, you know, because there's inspiration to hope for them and to transform mine through that chaos. But also too, God's blessed me with a career out of it. You know what I mean? To be able to like, who would have thought this music that I wrote years in prison, just events, just as an outlet, like, yo, that's, that's, that's going to sustain my livelihood and my family from now on, like, that's crazy. You know, but God redeems everything. I to ask you one funny thing before we go, because I saw one of your I saw one of your videos on Instagram about the ramen. Are you picking up the ramen? You're like, I ate this, you know, for, yeah, for 12 years. Yeah. But people love ramen now on the outside, but like real real ramen. Um, but yeah. give everybody at Rapzilla your best uh, prison recipe that they could do at home. And I would say the easiest, quickest. So... All you got to do is take a ramen noodle soup. Don't bust it down. Keep a hole. You know what I mean? Take the seasoning out, open it up, turn the sink water as hot as it gets. Put the hot, you know, the hot sink water in the ramen noodle soup. Let it sit for like a minute, sit it up, whatever. After a minute, two minutes, dump it out, fold it over, let it sit. So all like that heat, you know, just cooks the soup, softens it up and get you a bag of Cheetos. Bust up or open the Cheetos, bust up the Cheetos to so like, you know, real fine and grainy. And put a little bit more hot water in the bottom of the Cheetos. Push the Cheetos around. You know what I mean? Not too much water. You don't want the Cheetos like too like watery. Put enough water to make it all mushy. And then like you like flatten out the Cheetos like on the bottom of the thing. Fold it up, put it on there. Let that sit. Let it cook. And then um, after you know a couple minutes, you open up the ramen noodle. Open up as a soup sandwich. You can put your uh, Cheetos on there. And then whatever. I mean, now you're on the street, so you can put whatever else you want on top of. You can put lunch meat, ketchup, mustard. Don't use like prison items. So then you would take like a, a little chub sausage and cut it up and put it on there. So ketchup and mustard and mayo. Close it, and you got you a, a soup sandwich, man. Always, I always love hearing about people explaining, you know, how they do it in prison because they do it exactly like you. Like it's an art form. You see them, they're like. Like it's like you're watching like it's like you're watching Gordon Ramsay greatest steak is prepared and they're like yeah, yeah you know yeah. take the ramen I take the Doritos you know the the yeah, beef jerky yeah, yeah. I put it on the radiator and it's like this yeah. whole process and that like really meticulous that like they're proud of too I always yeah. think it's hilarious but man uh, thank you for your time I I appreciate you yeah bro I greatly appreciate it man again it's an honor Justin thank you bro yes shout sir. out to Rapsy man thank you for the opportunity no, too man oh no right right back at you man.